some of you may know this, but uh, even that song, It Is Well With My Soul, I mean, he wrote that song uh, just after uh, a couple of his daughters tragically died in a shipping accident. And when he was kind of on the scene there going uh, past that in another ship, that's the song he wrote, It Is Well With My Soul, even in the midst of that great tragedy because he knew uh, who was in control and who he could lean on. want to welcome you online as well. I forgot to say that before. We're glad you're tuning in. All right. From the beginning of the uh, Old Testament, we have uh, this mysterious person who is going to come and be our deliverer. Even in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve had sinned and plunged the whole world into sin and brokenness, there was this promise that someone would come through the woman and would be our deliverer. And then as we read on in the Old Testament, we just get more and more glimpses of who this person is. And uh, eventually there's the tribe of Israel, and it was said that he would come through them. And then the, uh, if you know the Israelites, they were divided into 12 tribes, and the tribe of Judah... It was prophesied that this ruler would come through him, through Judah and his tribe. And eventually that became David. And David was that person that was chosen out of the tribe of Judah to rule. And then the prophecy was made by David that he would never fail to have someone on the throne. So uh, all through the Old Testament, there's this mysterious figure, this deliverer, this, uh, and eventually he became to be known as the Messiah with the, uh, through the Israelites. So the Messiah or Mashiach is the Hebrew word and Christ is the Greek word for the anointed one. And that's uh, referring to this Messiah. So in the Psalms, there are many references to this Messiah, either uh, directly or indirectly, and these are often called Messianic Psalms, Psalms about the Messiah. And so, for example, uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm 110 this morning, but even in Psalm 22, it begins with saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And David cried out with this uh, phrase, and we know Jesus quoted that on the cross. And as we go through Psalm 22, uh, it speaks uh, in verse 16 to 18, it talks about having hands and feet pierced. I can count all my bones. They divide my garments among them, and they cast lots for my clothing. And most likely that didn't happen to David. So now we're wondering, well, who's he talking about now? And we know from the uh, events in the New Testament, these were details of Jesus' crucifixion. And so a number of Psalms have details like this that only one person could have fulfilled and did, and that was Jesus. To my knowledge, I only missed two uh, Sundays this summer. I don't think we talked about a necessary messianic psalm, so today... Uh, will be a specific messianic psalm, a psalm talking about this deliverer, this Messiah that the Israelites were waiting for. And Psalm 110 is the uh, most quoted psalm uh, in the New Testament. So uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to look at Psalm 110, and I want to read that for us here this morning. 
And then we just want to walk through it and see what it says. So starting at verse uh, 1, it says, A psalm of David, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the, whole, over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. Psalm 110, God's word. So yeah, we have the first phrase, which is very interesting. Uh, the Lord said to my Lord. And if you, uh, I think in most translations, the first Lord is all capitalized letters. And that's referring to God Most High, as in Yahweh. And the second Lord is with a capital L, but smaller letters. And it's the Hebrew word Adon, and which uh, Adonai comes from that word. Which is master or ruler. And that's uh, the second Lord, Lord. So David refers to this second Lord as his master or ruler. And when it says the word... Uh, says, the Lord says, that's a technical word, and it gives great weight or authority to what's being said here. It's kind of like when the prophet would say, thus says the Lord, you know that the next thing he says will be the very words of God. And that's what's happening here. It says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So to the Israelites, this would have been very intriguing. This master over David uh, would be sitting at the right hand of Yahweh. This descendant of David seems to be more than just a man. And I, I just wanted to highlight that this verse, verse 1, is actually used by those who would ca call themselves Unitarians. They don't believe in the Trinity or that Jesus is the Son of God or equal to God. And same with the Jehovah's Witness. They use this verse to claim that Jesus is not God and there is no Trinity. So that's interesting. They say, well, Yahweh says to this Master Lord, so that seems to suggest this other person is inferior. So there you have it. It's, Jesus is not God and there is no Trinity. And so uh, we'll, we'll keep looking at that. But just to highlight that, this is a verse that other uh, false religions and other groups use to try to prove. Uh, so yeah, it's again taking one verse and making it say something that it doesn't. In three of the Gospels, we see this verse is used by Jesus himself. Uh, in Matthew 21 to 23, Jesus is in this battle with the religious leaders uh, they're trying to discredit him, ask him hard questions about taxes, by what authority are you doing this? 
and uh, they want to get rid of him. They want him to trip up or somehow say something. They can catch him and try to, yeah, discredit him that he is not this Messiah. So Jesus answers all their questions and their silence. So now he asks them a question in Matthew 22, 41, 46. It says there, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ, Messiah, whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So first thing, Jesus here confirms that David is the author of Psalm 110. And what's Interesting, he said he was led by the Holy Spirit when he uh, recorded Psalm 110. So Jesus said he is the author and he was led by the Holy Spirit. It was God's word. So he challenged the misunderstanding uh, of the religious leaders and the most Jews who, who had this belief the Messiah would be a, an earthly king a warrior king, and we've talked about that through John and through our study in Matthew, that for the most part the Jews had a very uh, wrong misunderstanding. They thought he would be a warrior king, that he would come defeat their enemies, and then they could have their nation, their glory back, and uh, all that. And Jesus is trying to correct them that there's some faulty thinking going on here. And because Jesus used the scriptures that the religious leaders knew that's why they, they couldn't answer him because they knew that was what it said. That was the, what the scriptures said. So they were stumped and it said nobody dared to ask him any more questions for that reason. And we know that the book of Matthew, which we studied uh, a couple years ago, his, oh, one of his main themes was to show us who this Messiah was and give a correct understanding that he was both man and Lord, divine and human. And that was so hard for them to wrap their minds around. And it took them a long time to get there. It wasn't uh, until after the resurrection and the Holy Spirit was given, and understanding was given in this area, that they finally recognized who this Jesus was. And we even know uh, there were times when Jesus rebuked a storm, uh, the wind and the waves, and he said, be still. And it was completely quiet. And it says the men looked at each other and said, who is this in the boat? They started uh, wondering, okay, this is way more than just a man. And uh, in Romans chapter 1, verse 1 to 4, Paul uh, summarizes what the early Christians believed about Jesus the Messiah. And here's what it says there. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, 
Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul said, yes, he did come from David. He was humanly descended on, on David's line, but he was declared to be the son of God uh, in power but because of his resurrection. So there's this God-man that Paul said, this is who we believe the Messiah is. So that is verse 1, um, a very amazing verse. Verse 2 to 3 describe this Lord of David receiving great authority and great power from Yahweh to defeat his enemies and to rule over them. In the book of Daniel, uh, and I, I do encourage you to write these references down and read them later as well. In the book of Daniel chapter 7, Daniel receives a vision about this coming one to, described here in Psalm 110. And uh, it, it's an exciting couple verses. Daniel 7, 13 to 14. Daniel said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. I just put, wow, what a passage. Daniel foresaw in, in his vision this coming one and the authority he would receive and his everlasting kingdom. In Matthew 26, when the religious rulers were questioning Jesus just before they crucified him, they were trying to get him to admit that he was the Son of God, or he thought he was the Son of God. And Jesus quoted part of this uh, passage in Daniel, and he said, I am this coming one. You will see me in the clouds coming with great power and authority. And that's when the Pharisees and the religious leaders said, all right, that's it, the death penalty. And uh, that's what got him um, in big trouble. But he said, I am that one that Daniel described. So back in Psalm 110, verse 3, we have this beautiful picture of those who align themselves with this ruler. It says, your people will offer themselves freely on this day of power, on the day of your power. They were prepared and freely gave themselves to the service of this king. And they were even dressed appropriately. And again, I want to look at another passage that describes this in, in more detail as well. Uh, dressed for action and Jesus coming in power. And it's Revelation 19, 11 to 16. And I want to read that. Then I saw, and this is what John uh, re recorded, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, and here it is, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, 
and he will rule them with the rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. <laughs> I read this to my son quite a few years ago, and he said, Dad, are you telling me we might be riding with Jesus uh, into battle? <laughs> That's where his mind went. I said, I'm not sure, but there is uh, people that are joining Jesus in this battle. Psalm 110, uh, back to Psalm 110, verse 4, we have another incredible statement about this Messiah figure. It says, The Lord, or Yahweh, has sworn, which means he has made a binding oath and he will not change his mind. This is a sure and lasting thing. This Lord of David would, would also be a priest but not in the line of Levi, but in the line of Melchizedek, which is significant. This character Mel Melchizedek shows up only briefly in Genesis chapter 14. Again, I invite you to read that whole chapter, but just to summarize, uh, we have Abraham, who was then called Abram. Uh, he and his nephew Lot were growing, uh, their flocks were growing larger and larger, and they had to separate Abraham, Abram went one way and Lot went another direction towards the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And a war broke out and uh, someone came and attacked Sodom and Gomorrah and in the attack they actually captured Lot, his family and all his things and they took him away. Someone who escaped this battle came and told Abraham, your nephew Lot has been captured and his whole family and all his things. So Abram gathered as many men as he could and he went after this attacking army. He defeated them and he rescued Lot and his family and all his possessions, including all the other people that were taken uh, from Sodom and Gomorrah. On the way back from this battle, uh, the victory, we suddenly get introduced to this mysterious figure, a king of righteousness, and he was also a priest of God named Melchizedek. And he uh, came and blessed Abram. And uh, he just appears for this brief moment there. And in Genesis 14, 18, he is also called the priest of God Most High. So he's this king of righteousness and this priest of God Most High. In verse 19 to 20 of chapter 14, he blesses Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor or, creator of, or, possessor or creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. After this blessing, Abram gave this priest a tenth of all he had captured. And just like that, he disappears, this Melchizedek. So we have this priest that suddenly shows up, blesses Abraham. He's called a priest of the Most High God. And here we have in Psalm 110 that this Lord of David would become a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So I do want to explore that because it is very important. So please stay with me. We're going to turn to the uh, book of Hebrews uh, because it explains there who this Melchizedek did and why that is important. So keep your finger in Psalm 110 and please join me 
in Hebrews. We're going to look at chapter 5 to start off. And I'm going to read actually uh, chapter 5, verse 1 to 10. I thought of summarizing some of these passages, but the Bible clearly explains it, so I'm going to read God's Word and let His Word do the work. So let's read uh, Hebrews 5, 1 to 10. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice first for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And if you just turn over to chapter 7, I'm actually going to read that whole chapter because it explains um, this whole deal with Melchizedek. And we can see why this is so important and how wonderful it is that God has sworn that Jesus would be a priest in order of Melchizedek. So let's start Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name a king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior." In one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. 
Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of his weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn you will and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost or completely those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. God's word. Um, that was a lot of things to read there, but the main point is we have this great high priest. The old priesthood that sacrificed the animals could never bring the perfection that was needed or, or never bring the complete forgiveness. It was just a covering. Something new had to happen, a new priest. And this is the whole point of uh, introducing this Melchizedek because there is someone who came like him. And, and I know one of my favorite verses is verse 25 of chapter 7. Because he is a priest who lives forever, he can save us to the uttermost or completely when we draw near to God because he's always making intercession for him, for us. He's always representing us before God is Father.
And in that sense, we have eternal security there, eternal salvation because of who this Jesus is and because he changed the priesthood to this better lasting one. And so we have this high priest um, who, who deserves to be worshipped and praised. And so when God says uh, he's sworn he will not change his mind is a huge statement uh, that the Israelites at that time didn't know who this person was, but now we do know uh, it was Jesus Christ himself. So there's two big statements so far that we have that this Messiah would be Lord and he would also be a priest that would reign forever as a king and as a priest. And the Israelites were expecting a king and they were also expecting a priest and Jesus fulfilled both of them eternally. So the fact that this Messiah is divine and that, he's, that he is eternal he can represent the whole uh, world, all of mankind. Because he is divine, he can re represent all of us as a priest and as a king. So being divine, he has the right to rule over us, to be our rightful king. And as a high priest and divine, he can represent every one of us in this world. And so he had to be more than just a man, and he was. So Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, I'll just read those couple verses uh, here. It says with great encouragement, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And that's another one of these great blessings we have a high priest like we do. We can come to him with confidence to the throne of grace and expect to find mercy and grace in time of need. So back to Psalm 110, uh, verses 5 to 7. We, say, we see in verse 5 that the Lord is at your right hand uh, and, and God is for this king, for this Lord. All his authority is with him. And then it says uh, there's some very vivid descriptions there that he will execute judgment and uh, there will be corpses, and he will shatter chiefs or rulers over the wide earth. And he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. And that image is of a king going after a, 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 an enemy army, and he gets tired, he gets refreshed at the brook, gets some water, and then he carries on to finish his job. And that's what Jesus uh, is being alluded to here. He will carry on his work and he will finish the job. And we don't like, some of us don't like this description of bloodshed and enemies being destroyed. But the truth is Jesus will come to rule. And there will be those who will offer themselves freely to him. But there will be those who will be his enemies and he will come to conquer them, to deal with them. 
that is uh, scriptural. We even know, as we read in Matthew, that the Pharisees themselves were some of these enemies. They refused to acknowledge that Jesus was the king, the son of God, and they actually had him killed, thinking they got rid of him, uh, but he did not. So Jesus is our high priest. He is our rightful king, and we're grateful to know we have such a, a high priest. And uh, speaking of enemies, even in our culture today, uh, with its individualistic thrust um, that we have, uh, not submitting to any kind of authority, we're challenged by Jesus who said, I am the king and you need to decide if you're going to bow down willingly or if you will be forced to bow later. And uh, we read that last week in Philippians where it says, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Some will do that willingly. Some will be doing that um, against their will, but they will acknowledge he is the king worthy of our worship and honor. The thought of surrendering all our rights to this king for some can be very distasteful. I'll go for savior, but king and lord that's a, that's a whole nother story, but Jesus doesn't give us the option of choosing if we want to just stay with Savior. It has to be Lord and Savior. And for those that know this high priest, this gracious king, it's a privilege to bow before him. So in closing, I just want to look at Acts chapter 2. So if you want to join me there, after Jesus died and rose again, the disciples were praying and uh, they were told to wait in Jerusalem until they received the Holy Spirit. They received power from above. And so we know on the day of Pentecost, there was a group that was praying and waiting and suddenly the room was filled with this rushing wind. All the people were, had these tongues of fire set on them. They began uh, declaring the wonders of God in different languages. And so people were asking, like, what is going on? And Peter explains to them that this was prophesied in the book of Joel, that the Holy Spirit would come, that this Jesus whom you crucified is actually the Lord and King, the coming King. And I just want to read part of uh, the message that Peter gave to the people, and it includes uh, quoting verse 1 of Psalm 110. So I just want to start, where do I want to start? I'll start in verse 29. So he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being there a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves have, are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So Peter declares, we now know who this Messiah King is. It's Jesus. And he is both Lord and Savior. And it, it was this wonderful response from the people. Well, what do we do now? And Peter says, repent. Bow to this King and give your life to him. And I like what it says. The promise of this salvation, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, is for their children and then for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself and we would be among those who are far off, who have received Jesus as our Savior. That promise uh, salvation has come to us. So I want to just encourage you as we uh, close that today is a great day as a believer to say, Jesus, you are the king, and I willingly bow before you. As the people in Psalm 110 who freely gave themselves to the service of the king, would you renew that today? Renew your humble submission to this king who deserves our, our worship, praise, and our very lives. Maybe you don't even know Jesus, your savior, and whether you're online or whether you're sitting here, today is a great day to surrender your life to Jesus. And it says exactly what we need to do. Peter says, repent. That means turn from living your own life and turn to let Jesus run your life from now on. Surrender to him. And you know what a great high priest he is. And it says, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Confess your sins to him and he will forgive you. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a gift that Jesus promised he would give to all those who trust in Jesus as their Savior. The Holy Spirit is the one that empowers us to live for Jesus, to conquer sin. We can't do that on our own. And we know Jesus promised he would send that gift so that we would have Jesus' presence in us. It's all amazing, but this is what Jesus, our great Savior, has done. And we can start following Jesus today. And maybe there's someone here today that wants to talk about that. I would love to talk about that after the service. And any of these other things, you can email me at the church or, or talk to a friend that you came with. Ask them about it. It's an eternal question that needs an answer, and, it's, and it is urgent. And we have a Savior who's waiting to uh, hear that call. Let's pray. Dear God, uh, I want to thank you for Psalm 110 and just the 
uh, picture it gives us of this future coming king and priest, that he would sit at your right hand, that he would be a priest that would live forever and always intercede for those who are saved and believers, and uh, you would hold them to the end. You would forgive their sins, and because you're eternal, you would always be at the Father's side interceding for us. And even today, as we hear the invitation, it's an act of worship and humility to once again bow our knee before you and say, you are the king, and I offer myself up to you in service of your kingdom, however that looks, because I trust you and I know you're a good Savior, a good God. I pray that you would just do your work uh, in our hearts through your Holy Spirit, and we just ask this in Jesus' name, amen.